turning this morning to John chapter 7, verses 14 through 44. It is a longer passage than what I ordinarily preach from, but it seems as though this part fits very nicely together. Um, It's not really helped by the chapter divisions in our Bibles, but that's okay. As you might know, those divisions were added later on, long after the Bible was given to us. And we are in a portion of the Gospel of John that records Jesus' first trip to Jerusalem, where people are wondering, who really is this Jesus? If you have not been here for previous weeks, and by which I mean quite a number of weeks in the past, or you don't remember this series of sermons on John, I want to reintroduce them to you by saying the burden of the gospel of John is to give you reason to believe in Jesus. He wants to encourage you with everything that was in Jesus' life, ministry, teaching, that Jesus alone is Savior, and not only is he Savior, but he is more than capable of bearing the weight of your trust. This is not a record of mere history. This is meant to be a persuasive document to lead you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And as much as I'm able this morning, I want to preach the word to you with that spirit as well to persuade you to believe in Jesus Christ. Let's begin at verse 14 of John chapter 7. About the middle of the feast, that is the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given to you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If, a, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. 
You seek me and will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where is this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying you will seek me and not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. This is as far as we are going to read in God's Word. It is a lengthy passage. You might wonder this morning, in fact, ask in your own mind, Pastor, why preaching so much? It is because, I believe, that this section of Scripture really holds together in presenting one fundamental truth to us. And often I try at the beginning of my sermon to give you kind of a catchy intro. This morning, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to tell you what this long section is about. It's simply this. That Jesus knows you have a. That, <laughs> I was all wound up to give it to you. Let me try again. Jesus knows that you have objections about his appeal. That's what this section is about. He knows you have objections about his appeal. What I'm going to do this morning is give you the two main objections that are found in this passage. And then I want to also explain to you Jesus' response to these two objections. I want to bury our thinking for just a moment at the section in time in Jesus' ministry where this is occurring. It will not make sense if you don't know a bit of the context. As I said at the beginning before I read this passage, Jesus is at the Feast of the Tabernacles. If you remember that feast, it was the feast that remembered that the Israelites had wandered around in the desert before they went into the Promised Land And God had provided for them through all those years of wandering. Tabernacles is just a way that we might say tent. They lived in tents for years while waiting, and God provided for them through all of those years. And this was one of the great festivals of the Israelites. Every male Israelite was required to go to the temple for this festival. And before the part that we read, if you can remember all the way back to when we looked at the first number of verses in this chapter, Jesus' disciples, in fact, his own family encourages him to go up to the temple for the Feast of Tabernacles. His family says it in jest. They say, why don't you go up to the Feast of Tabernacles and show everyone you're finally here, the Messiah has arrived. Why don't you go ahead and do it? And then we read that's not what Jesus did. In fact, he didn't go up at the beginning. It's not until our section here in verse 14, in the middle of the festival, a festival that lasted seven days, 
It's not until the middle of the festival that Jesus begins to speak. And now the crowds, both the religious authorities as well as your average Jewish male as well as families that came to the temple for this festival begin to listen to Jesus. Before it's been limited, there have been crowds here and there. People have made their judgments. This is Jesus in his grand entrance. This is his first presentation to the Israelite nation as a whole. And as the people listen to his teaching, they have two central objections to Jesus being the Messiah. The first objection comes in verses 14 through 24. I think it can summarize that by looking at the center of that teaching in verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from me or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Here's the first hesitation the Jews had about Jesus, and that is, as we read in another gospel, Jesus, as Jesus spoke as one who had authority, not as the other religious leaders spoke. You'll notice in this section, that's at the center of their objection about Jesus. They say, how could you be speaking, Jesus? You're not someone who has been in the rabbinic schools that we teach in. How is it possible for you to teach as you do? For the rabbis of the day, they would spend years and years and years learning the tradition of the interpretation of the law. And they felt most comfortable in repeating with those notable figures who had come before them had said about the various laws. They found their comfort not in speaking from the law of God directly as though they could interpret it directly. They found comfort in interpreting it through the lens of many of those who preceded them. And now comes Jesus and he is speaking to them truth that falls outside of what their rabbis would have said. He's inherently challenging the system of interpretation that existed at the time. Oh, more than that, he appears to these Jews to be speaking on his own authority. So the question that they raise for him is this, on whose authority do you speak? What right do you have to teach the law of God to us as you are And they attach it to this notion of Jesus not only speaking on his own authority, but seeking his own glory. If I can just put it in very crass terms, here is an itinerant preacher who shows up speaking about the word of God, not respecting those who came before him, because in their minds he is trying to gather a following. This is the kind of preacher who's not interested In simply speaking the truth in their minds, he is interested in pressing them, in trying to convince them to follow him. It's very interesting the way that Jesus responds to this objection. But before I tell you how he responds, I simply want to ask you a simple question. As much as I have been telling you this is the way the Jewish authorities and people responding to Jesus, let me ask you if there's any hint of this objection in your own mind. Is it possible that when you consider Jesus, there's a part of you that also wonders whether Jesus is another religious persuader meant to draw attention to himself? 
Or maybe if that seems too harsh, I can expand the question. Does it appear as though the work that God is doing in his world through Jesus Christ and his spirit is not a good work. In fact, it is really about drawing attention for the sake of attention gathering. Maybe that sounds a little bit obscure. Let me try it this way. Every once in a while, I go to a website called Ministry Watch. I hope that you're not familiar with it. (laughs) If you are, you'll know it's a website in which the author of the website, the producer of the website, records the way in which the church is failing. He'll go from the Southern Baptists to the United Methodists to the Presbyterians to the Roman Catholics. He is indiscriminate in who he criticizes. But over and over and over, he raises cases of youth pastors being inappropriate, of senior pastors embezzling money, of churches not releasing particular congregations who want to leave their fellowship because the denomination as a whole has gone away from the Scriptures. He records story after story after story about how the church is less than it ought to be. Maybe when you look at Jesus, you have a similar suspicion, that's true about him, that Jesus is simply another attention-gathering fraud, that there's nothing inherently good or right about Jesus, he's simply a competitor for your attention. And if Jesus can do more, he can do what you ask, then you'd be interested. But until then, you look at suspicion with Jesus just as much suspicion as the person who walks up to the door and says to you, I'd like to sell you new siding or a roof for your house. He's simply somebody shilling shilling an opportunity for you to support and to give yourself to a fraud. It's very interesting in this first objection how Jesus responds. If you look at verse 20 and following, where Jesus says, you're trying to kill me, Jesus responds to the objection about Jesus simply being another attention-seeking fraud by pointing them to a miracle he did previously in chapter 5. If you go back in your Bibles, chapter 5, verses 1 and following, you'd find the story of a man who was lame for 38 years, and Jesus healed him. As wonderful as that is, what really bubbles to the surface in that story is not the wonder of the healing, it's that Jesus performed it on the Sabbath. And from that point onward, the religious leaders considered Jesus to be less than the Messiah because he would violate the Sabbath. This is an attention to the law that really ignores its purpose. And Jesus, when responding to them about their suspicion that he's an attention-seeking fraud, points them to the miracle and then says, Moses gave you circumcision, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry when I made a whole man whole? Now, please stick with me because this is a little complicated. It's a little hard to understand. What Jesus is saying about the miracle it performed in John chapter 5 is that the miracle was meant to not violate the law of Moses. It was meant to fulfill it. 
According to Jewish tradition, on the eighth day, a Jewish boy was to be circumcised. Didn't matter if it was a Sabbath or not. Because the law of circumcision was more significant. Why was it more significant? Because in the Old Testament, circumcision was meant to be a sign of the cleansing and purification of that child. And that cleansing and purification was the significant statement about that child belonging to the covenant community of God. And Jesus said, if you believe that about circumcision, that this statement about cleansing, purification, being made whole could be done on the Sabbath, how about when I healed a man who had been lame for 38 years and made him completely whole? What Jesus is saying to the Old Testament Israelites here in John chapter 7 is that they missed the point of the law. The commandment of Moses was not simply something to be followed. Listen to this. He is saying the law of Moses was meant to point to a deeper reality. First of all, the intention of God to make pure and clean those who belong to him. A similar kind of sign that was given to Oliver this morning. We say the sign didn't make him holy in his heart. The sign didn't make him justified with God. The sign pointed to something, and that is the work of Jesus Christ. Circumcision, Jesus is arguing in this passage, does exactly the same thing. So that when Jesus arrived on earth and he healed, he made a man whole. He was turning back the effect of sin dramatically in the way that the law was intended to point to in every respect. Jesus is saying it, saying it very clearly. He did not violate the Old Testament law. He fulfilled it. Now, you might wonder, in this context, how does that answer the objection? The objection these folks have raised is that Jesus is an attention-seeking fraud. The answer Jesus gives them is, I fulfill the Old Testament law. You might wonder, how does that answer their objection? What does that do? To answer that, I want to go back to verse 17. In verse 17, it says, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Jesus' explanation of his miracle and how he fulfills the Old Testament law is to demonstrate something about authority. The Israelites interpreted the Old Testament law based on the authorities that came before them. Jesus says, I have come to you with the authority of God himself. And if you want to see a demonstration of that authority, look at the miracle I performed and see how that miracle points to me as a fulfillment of God's intention to make all things right through the Messiah. Jesus' answer to their objection that he is simply seeking attention is to say, I have come from a God who has pointed to me in the law over and over and over again. 
I'm not someone new. I just didn't throw up, show up. I'm not speaking my own authority. I'm speaking from the authority of the one who enables me to perform miracles like this through whom I fulfill what God always intended. I'm not a Johnny come lately who all of a sudden does these miracles to amaze and astound you. I do these things so that you would know that the authority with which I teach is an authority that comes from God himself. This morning as I am explaining this to you, I'm very conscious of the fact that for many of us, the kind of objections that we lay before belief in Jesus are not primarily objections of our minds. They are objections of our heart. Jesus says in verse 17 and verse 18 that they're objecting to him and his authority not simply because they perceive he is speaking of their own authority. They understand the implication if he's speaking with the authority of God himself. If Jesus speaks with the authority of God himself, my friends, then you have the obligation to listen to him. It's not somebody who is simply another religious option. This is God's appointed Messiah who's speaking to you in the Gospel of John. This is not one option for you to believe or disregard. This is God's Savior, the only Savior, the one the whole Scripture has been pointing to, the one who demonstrated his power in the miracles he performed, the one who comes from God himself, he is being revealed here in the Scripture. And he's calling you to believe. He's calling you to overcome the objection and to believe that this one, Jesus Christ, is in fact the Messiah, the one sent from God. What do I say to you this morning? What does Jesus say to you if you object to him as simply another religious option and not a very good one at that? It's simply this. This Jesus has come from God. He has the authority of God. He has demonstrated he's from God. And he's calling you to believe. But there's a second objection as well that is inherent in these verses, and this is the longer section of this passage in verses 25 through 36. And this raises a number of objections that are really captured under one central idea. If I can just point your attention to this section in verses 25 through 31, the crowds are objecting to Jesus because they say, we know where you come from. They return to that objection in verses 40 through 44. They say, we know where you come from, and it doesn't fit with what we believe ought to be true. There's also an objection in verses 32 through 39 about where Jesus is going. They object to him where he is coming from and where he is going. They object to his going and that they believe, based on his words, that they cannot come where he is going, that he is going somewhere else, even they believe outlandishly to the Jews. 
How can you be the Messiah, not to the Jews rather, but to the Greeks? How is it possible that you are the Messiah if you are going to the Greeks? If I can just summarize this objection for you, it is this. There's no reason for me to trust in Jesus because he doesn't meet my expectations. He's not who I think he ought to be. I could explain each of these objections more thoroughly, and I will to some degree, but I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees. The objection that is raised in verses 25 through 31 is an objection that was based on a misunderstanding. The Jews believe that when the Messiah, when he appeared, no one would know where he came from, and that would be a sign that he was in fact the Messiah. You might wonder, why would they believe that to be true? Here's an idea. Have you ever heard of a performer who changes his or her name when they start to become famous? I used to be known as, now I am. Why would they do that? The reason why they do that is because they want you to understand that the person they, weren't bef- that they were before is not the person they are now. You used to know where I came from, some small town in Indiana, but that's not who I really am now. Now I am this star. And the Jews believe something similar would happen with the Messiah. If you knew where he came from, he couldn't be all that the Messiah was anticipated to be. That would be far too limiting. He would have to all of a sudden appear almost out of the blue. That would demonstrate that he was in fact the Messiah. He would demonstrate his greatness. You notice Jesus dismisses that idea very quickly in verse 28. He says, you know where I come from. Eventually they do. They eventually come to think that he's from Galilee. He's really from Bethlehem as we know. But this objection that they raise that he could not be the Messiah because they know where he comes from, he says, you are mistaken. You believe I come from a town and a city, but look at what he says in verse 29. I have come from him and he has sent me. That Jesus was someone who was born of a woman and grew up in Bethlehem or was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, should not disqualify him from being the Messiah because Jesus says without hesitation, ultimately I come from the Father. He has sent me. He is the one who has brought me to earth. The other objection, the other side of that objection, the other bookend of that objection is in verses 32 and following where Jesus says, I'm going to leave and you cannot come with me. That where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews say, what does that mean? That's ridiculous. Of course we can go where you are. Jesus says, you will seek me and you will not find me. And they say, where is that going to be? That makes no sense. Again, this set of objections that really fall under, Jesus, you're not meeting the expectation that we have where you're from and where you're going. They don't, they don't make sense with what I believe ought to be true. Now, here's the most interesting part of this passage, the way in which Jesus answers that final objection. And it comes in a section I've not said much about, but I want to be, make very clear to you, verses 39, uh, 37 through 39. 
where after all of these objections are raised, on the very last day of the feast, likely the seventh day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If you do, the scripture is said out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. After all of these objections, even the desire to kill Jesus, you might wonder to yourself, what in the world is Jesus doing? Is he ignoring their objections? Is he answering them in any way? Let me give you an explanation. And if up to now it feels like we've wandered through this passage and you're wondering, what in the world are you trying to tell me? Listen carefully to this. As I said at the beginning, the Feast of Tabernacles recalled the time when the Israelites were in the desert, when they wandered around. They were looking forward to the time when God would bring them to the promised land. And the Jews celebrated that history by a fairly elaborate ritual at every Feast of Tabernacles. That ritual was this. Every morning of those seven days, water was taken from the Pool of Siloam and carried by the high priest to the temple. And as he came to the temple, the temple choir would sing from the Psalms, and every Israelite male would wave willow and myrtle branches in his right hand, a piece of fruit in his left hand, and they would sing together, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. The water was then poured out before the Lord. They did this for two reasons. Hear this carefully. First was retrospective, to tell them that God had given them water in the desert. He had provided for them. The second is this. It also pointed them forward to the coming of the Messiah when they believed the Spirit of God would be poured out over the whole earth. And here Jesus is in verses 37, 38, and 39 telling them at the Feast of Tabernacle on the last day the water has been poured out, Jesus stands and proclaims, if you are thirsty, if you lack water, come to me, I will satiate your thirst. Even more, I will make you into living springs of water through whom the Spirit will do great work. Now, here's a question I have for you as I end this morning. How does this answer the objections the Jews were raising? The question about where Jesus was from, the question about where Jesus was going, it seems totally disconnected. They object to him based on their expectation, and Jesus says, I'm fulfilling this feast. I am the one that the Feast of Tabernacle was anticipating. How does this answer the objection? The connection is here. The Jews looked at Jesus as one who was entirely separated from them. They looked at one at him as the one they would evaluate, the one that they should discern whether he was a Messiah. And along comes Jesus and he says, in verses 37, 38, and 39. I am not one to be evaluated. I am one to be believed. And if you will believe in me, I will not only provide for the thirst that you have, I will go even further and I will make you into one who is useful in the purposes of Christ's kingdom. 
Jesus transforms a question from their evaluation of him to his ability to use them in the kingdom he came to establish. Or let me put it this way. What Jesus has the power to do is to turn you from an objector, objector to an instrument that the Spirit of Christ can use. In all your objections to Jesus, whatever they might be, Jesus has even greater purposes for you than you can imagine. As much as he may seem to be less than you anticipate, Jesus is the one who has come from the Father. He is a fulfillment of the Old Testament law. He has demonstrated his power that he is divinely appointed by the miracle of Scripture. And he has the ability, as he claims in these verses, to satiate the thirst that exists in your soul and use you to do great things in his kingdom. My friend, may that be true for you this morning. That as you've come, whether it's full, ready to receive Christ in holy claims to be, or whether your heart comes with objections, may the Spirit this morning overcome those by the words of Jesus himself. Let's pray. Our Father, as we have heard these words, we have also prayed that the Spirit would be with us, that He would guide us, that He would lead us into truth. We pray that would have happened here. In a passage that is quite difficult to understand and may lead to some confusion, Lord, we pray instead of confusion, clarity would reign. And Lord, turn us from those who object to those who believe, follow, and are useful to our King. It is in His name that we pray. Amen.